The title of today's Dharma talk is Distraction and the Nature of Mind. Distraction and concentration are two expressions of how attention is aimed. Is our attention focused and steady on one object, such as the movements of the breath, or steady with the flow of changing phenomena, a sound, sensations in the body, breath, emotion, thoughts? Or is our attention dispersed, pushed and pulled between one object and another without much awareness or steadiness at all? One of the early Pali um, texts, one of the discourses of the Buddha, is called the Itivuttaka. And in the Itivuttaka, the Buddha says, a practitioner should so investigate that as she investigates, her consciousness is not distracted and diffused externally and internally is not fixed. And by not grasping anything, she should remain undisturbed. If her consciousness is not distracted and diffused externally and internally is not fixed, and by not grasping anything, she remains undisturbed, then there is no coming into existence of birth, aging, death, and suffering in the future. It is our attitude to objects that determines our distractibility. So what distracts us? Actually, anything could catch and Uh, catch our attention and be the place of fixation. It could be pain in the body that we find ourselves obsessing with. It could be plans of what we want to do with the whole rest of our lives. It could be romantic fantasies about a person that we may have seen on the retreat but never actually spoken with. It could be worries over troubles that our family tends to get into. Or it could be as mundane or um, petty as making shopping lists, or planning meals, or having songs run through the mind, or deciding where we'll do our next retreat. (laughs) (laughs) The instruction in the development of mindfulness is to return to wakefulness, to return to present awareness to release any judgment or urge to control the moment, to release any wish to fix or change phenomena, to adjust what's occurring, and to simply rest in the experience that is with clear awareness. Mindfulness practice encourages us to be present with just what is happening here and now, with a heart that is spacious and a mind that is clear, so that we cultivate a non-judgmental attitude to all that arises, experiencing the present moment with clarity and wisdom. When the mind slips off into distractions, whether they be plans or obsessive patterns or preoccupations, then we release that entanglement of mind and connect with what is again. Now, each time this occurs, when we realize that we're lost in thought, that the mind has drifted off, we begin again. But what happens in this moment of knowing that we've been thinking? Do we judge ourselves? 
Do we feel frustrated and angry? Do we doubt our capacity to meditate? We can notice what is the experience of being mindful of distraction. What is the experience of bringing mindfulness directly to thinking? What is the feeling in the body, the mental states, that occur when we've tuned in to the sense of being lost? What is a distraction? Distractions could be understood as interpretations of experience that are influenced by resistance. They're thoughts that we're identified with, that we cling to, or that we react to. If we expect silence in a sitting, then the guided meditation instruction might be interpreted as a distraction. And yet for someone else, the instruction is why they came to the retreat. If we want to taste the vegetables, the spices, the seasonings, might seem like a distraction, and yet for someone else, the seasoning is the taste. If we're pressured in our job to complete 12 reports every week, then the filing, the telephone calls, the emails, and the research that goes into maintaining the office, that goes into producing the report, all seem like distractions rather than part of the necessary work, the necessary conditions that bring about the report. Often we call experiences distractions simply because they are not what we want to be happening. We compare them to an ideal concept, so any experience that arises in the meditation that doesn't conform to our view of what a meditation is supposed to look like and feel like, seems like a distraction. But in meditation, when we're present and at ease, open to things as they are, we may notice that coughing can call us back to the present moment. That snoring can mingle with the twitter of the birds. That even a pain in the shoulder can be our anchor rather than an annoyance. When we're aware and mindful, something that we might normally consider a distraction may arise, but we'll find that we're undistracted by it. So what then really is a distraction? Nothing is inherently a distraction. Distraction is not inherent in the object. Distraction occurs in a way of relating to the object through clinging. One time I was in Nepal receiving some um, teachings from a lama there, and I was with a small group of Dharma friends. And we had an appointment each day at a certain time with the Lama. And so we would walk up this trail because his monastery was at the top of this um, little mountain. 
it would take, a, I don't know, a half an hour or so, 45 minutes. It wasn't that far up. But we'd walk up each day. And we were late one day for our appointments. You know, sometimes traffic in Kathmandu can be a little bit um, congested. Um, and so we were a little bit late and a little bit rushing. And so we were rushing up the trail. And I noticed that as I was moving up the trail, I had been walking with a few friends, and a few friends were just behind me. I noticed that they weren't behind me anymore. And so I paused at a bend in the trail to wait for them, and I waited a few minutes, and they didn't come. So I thought, hmm, what's going on? Um, you know, are they okay? Did something happen? And so I walked back a few bends in the road to where the last set of um, sort of village huts were. And there was a small shop and a few, just a few little... Um, um, very um, modest little shops. And there was a large group of people, as when anything happens, um, often a group clusters around. And my friends were there, and in the center of this group was a young girl, I don't know, maybe four years old, five years old, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And my friends had stopped because they had seen her crying. And they could speak a bit of the language, and so they had found out what was happening. And so what they found out was that she was sent to the shop to purchase two eggs, which she had done. She had bought two eggs and was returning home when she broke one of the eggs. And she was terrified to go home for fear of being beaten. And so my friends, after they found out what had happened, they sent a boy to the shop to purchase one more egg at the cost of two rupees. Now, at that time, I think the exchange rate was something like 46 rupees per dollar. So we're not talking about a huge investment. (laughs) But it was very touching to me because they took the time to do that. Were they distracted from their spiritual path? By the time we got up that hill, there was no more room. We couldn't get into the teachings. We sat outside and heard through the window. I would say no. They were not distracted from their spiritual path because they were responding to what was directly in front of them, what the need was in that moment. So the problem with distraction isn't out there in the object. It isn't necessarily something that prevents us from getting where we think we should. We don't need to control the environment to abide without distraction. We don't need to clear our path of all obstacles to be free of distraction. We don't need to have our eyes closed and prevent the input of um, visual stimulus. Sights don't need to be distractions. Sounds don't need to be distractions. We don't go into a soundproof room to meditate. The body doesn't need to be healthy or pain-free for meditation and awakening. All these twinges, those thoughts, I'll be able to meditate when I figure out how to sit so that my back doesn't hurt. Pain doesn't need to be a distraction. Usually, When we try to overcome distraction, we do so conventionally through concentration on an object. Staying close to the breath is the favored technique in most approaches to Vipassana practice. So we use the breath to get focused and to steady the attention. And that is one way 
of dissolving the scattered aspect of distraction. And yet, it may introduce a fixation, either internally or externally, a fixation either on the object, say the breath, or a fixation internally on being the breather. Samadhi refers to a stable and unified quality of mind, not necessarily concentration on any particular object. And so we investigate, as the Buddha's instruction encouraged us, and I'd like to read that verse again because it's quite dense and the language might be unfamiliar. A practitioner should so investigate that as he investigates, his consciousness is not distracted and diffused externally and internally is not fixed. And by not grasping anything, he should remain undisturbed. If his consciousness is not distracted and diffused externally and internally is not fixed, and by not grasping anything, he remains undisturbed, then there is no coming into existence of birth, aging, death, and suffering in the future. Avikepa is the Pali term that is translated as non-distraction. Avikepa. Non-distraction is the aspect of concentration that does not fixate on an object either internally or externally. Non-distraction does not require selective attention or focus on any particular meditative object. Non-distraction doesn't need to prefer one experience over another, one sensation over another, one object over another. Whatever is arising is simply known. Resting in the space in which things arise and pass, it may be sounds, sensations, emotions, thoughts, like stars or bubbles, momentary experiences of life unfolding. From this well-settled sense of this spacious mind, we may experience At times, the mind narrowing with a precise and penetrating focus on things. Sometimes that may be a clear choice of focusing on an object in the meditation. And sometimes we might just feel a habitual contraction around a habitual obsession. It could be something that we like or something that we don't like. And we can feel the mind narrow down. We can feel almost that separation from spaciousness. And so we release that contraction and rest back in spacious awareness so that we can experience the rapid arising and passing of experience as it unfolds with a mind that is clear. The image that's traditionally used is that we develop a mind so full of love and balance that our minds resemble a vast lake. If we were to take a teaspoon of salt and put it in a small glass of water and stirred it up and drank it, 
the, there would be an impact that would be quite strong. We would really feel that salt. But if we took that same teaspoon of salt, put it in a lake, stirred the lake a little bit, and then took a taste of the lake, it wouldn't have the same impact. We may not control the salt. We may not control the difficult or the abrasive conditions of life. But we can increase the capacity of our heart vessel to embrace the fullness of life. We increase the spaciousness. We increase the balance of mind. So how do we investigate in a way that the attention is not fixated, either internally or externally, nor diffused or distracted, as things in life are being known? We can inquire not only into what is arising and how is it changing. We can inquire into the knower and ask, What knows? Are we taking for granted how things are known? Meditation on mind excludes nothing, and it's also free of fixation and obsession. One knows everything or nothing without prejudice, without preferring one object over another, without rejecting some objects and selecting out others that seem more spiritual. We don't need to reject thoughts. We don't even need to still the mind. We don't need to reject certain sensations or favor others. Whatever is present is naturally known. We do not need to do so much in the meditation. We know the mind as it moves. We know the mind as it's still, and we know the knowing itself. And we can look into what is aware of any of these three. Where does moving, stillness, and knowing arise, abide, and cease? We investigate each of these movements of mind. We don't need to fixate on an object of mind. We investigate and look into the mind itself. We look into the mind to discover the source of I, to find what is aware of knowing. Let the question, what knows, be asked in the stillness of the meditation without needing to search for an answer without needing to grasp a concept of what we believe that we'll find or what we've heard as an inspiring or good answer. We don't need to turn reflection into a discursive thinking process. The cultural tendency is very strong to try to get definable answers, verifiable answers, concepts that we can that we can hold, experiences that we can repeat that confirm a sense of being who we are. The desire for measurable data, for clearly defined experiences and beliefs can get quite out of hand 
when it's applied to the spiritual life. And I read this um, article sitting in a waiting room one time. It was in one of these personal finance journals. And um, it was a, um, it's, about a, it's, re- it's about a New Orleans lawyer who was seeking a loan for a client um, from the Federal Housing Administration. And this, um, uh, along with the loan application, they had to clear the, the, um, the title, the abstract of title. So um, they printed the letter. Basically, the, the, the Federal Housing Agency asked the attorney to clear the title back further than, um, than beyond the date of, 19, of 1803, which was as far back as the original letter had cleared it. And this is the response of the attorney. Your letter regarding title in case number 189156 has been received. I note you wish to have title extended further than the 194 years covered by the present application. (laughs) I was unaware that any educated person in this country, particularly those working in the property area, would not know that Louisiana was purchased from the U.S., from France, in 1803, (laughs) the year of origin identified in our application. For the edification of uninformed FHA bureaucrats, the title to the land prior to U.S. ownership was obtained from France, which had acquired it by right of conquest from Spain. The land came into possession of Spain by right of discovery, made in the year 1492. by a sea captain named Christopher Columbus, (laughs) who had been granted the privilege of seeking a new route to India by the then reigning monarch, Isabella, the good queen being a pious woman and careful about titles. Almost as much as the FHA took the precaution of securing the blessings of the Pope before she sold her jewels to fund Columbus's expedition. Now, the Pope, as I'm sure you know, is the emissary of Jesus Christ. The son of God. <laughs> and God, is, it is commonly accepted, created the world. Therefore, I believe it is safe to presume that he also made that part of the world called Louisiana. He, therefore, would be the owner of origin. I hope you find his original claim to be satisfactory. Now we, may we have our loan. <laughs> If we demand answers to our inquiries in the meditative practice, then we become like bureaucrats over our spiritual lives. Can we just inquire, just ask with interest and attention, and be at ease in not having the answer so that we simply listen to a response to the question, and live the question. We recognize things as they're being known, naturally, effortlessly, and then we can look to see, known by what, and settle back to receive the experience of now, allow a response to emerge without grasping, an answer. 
The mind is usually so busy noticing things that we rarely turn the attention to notice the mind. When I practiced in Massachusetts, there's a walk that goes by a lake um, at the Insight Meditation Society. And very often the lake is very, very still. And in the fall, there's a circle of of trees where the the color is bright and red and gold and, and yellow and changes color quite beautifully. And the reflection on the water is as clear as a reflection as, as the trees. And sometimes just looking at it, it's, a, it's quite an interesting experience because there's almost the illusion that the trees are in the water. But very often we stay at the surface level, at the illusion level of experience and not see the water itself. Only see the reflection. Only see the illusion of things. We're so concerned with that level of reflection and objects that we may not penetrate to know the water itself. We're so concerned with the objects of the senses that we don't stop to attend to how it is that we perceive them. We tend to assume that objects are outside the mind. We assume that we can get some and avoid others based on whether we like them or don't like them. Our preferences, our desires, and our fears can define the limits of what we are even aware of, what we allow into our perception, allowing in only the preconceived experiences that confirm who it is we are and how it is we want to be. So that self-interest can become a distorting force simply in what we even perceive. One time when I was in um, India, I had some, some personal business to do in New Delhi. So I had gone to Connaught Place, taken a hotel and was... I don't remember arranging plane tickets or train tickets or trying to get money or something, all the various things that a traveler needs to do. And it was really hot. And so I had gone in the morning to do my business and um, was on my way back to the hotel with only one thought in mind, which was, I got to get to the hotel and rest because it was so hot and I was so tired. And Delhi can sometimes have an overwhelming aspect to it when the mind is, um, is, is tired. So I was like making a beeline for the hotel, and I wasn't going to let anything else into my awareness. And um, somebody came up and says, change money, change money, change money. Well, I didn't need to change money to dollars to rupees. So I just kept walking. Change money, change money, change money. Got to a stoplight waited, crossed the street. I didn't even want to look. I didn't even want to deal with him. I just thought, I'll just cross the street and get away from it. And I crossed the street. A few steps later, the exact same voice, change money, change money, change money, like coming up behind me, like right in my ear, pursuing. Usually they don't pursue, but I just didn't have the energy to deal with it. So I just walked forward, blocked it out, change money, change money, change money, got to another stoplight, crossed the street, change money, 
changed my name. I couldn't believe it. So by this time, I'm starting to get pissed off, <laughs> getting really angry. So I was about to whip around and say something very unnice. And I whipped around, and before I said anything, I saw it was my Swiss friend. <laughs> just playing with me. I didn't even know he was in India at the time. <laughs> just his way of saying hello. <laughs> and it was such a good experience for me because I realized that that how much had been built up emotionally and internally. I mean, I was furious. And it wasn't because of the contact. It wasn't because of the sound, change money, big deal. And it certainly wasn't because of my friend. It was because I hadn't faced the situation. A whole story had built up by avoiding contact with what is. And all of that reaction, all of that anger just was dispelled. And I turned around and I saw my friend. (laughs) If we realize that thoughts and emotions are just thoughts and emotions, nothing so unusual, nothing so traumatic, nothing so significant, then we may not need to push them away. And we may not need to avoid so many experiences that we fear might be overwhelming. We can simply rest in the experience, open to it, inquire into what's being known, and realize the truth of the moment. And then if we become distracted, then we stabilize the attention again with mindfulness and awareness. We rest in, we connect again, we feel ourselves standing. We see what's before us. We can use knowing as an area to explore in the meditation practice. Or we can use the mindfulness of the objects of breath and body, of sights and sounds. The attention can be narrow and precise, or it can be vast and spaciousness. It can be focused or broad. When the attention is stable and the mind is quiet, then we inquire we look into the experience, and then we rest again to listen to the response of that inquiry. We don't need to nurse any intention of getting rid of anything because there are no problems with things. The problems just are not inherent in the things. Whether it's a sight we don't like, or a sound we don't like, or a thought, a pain, or emotion, These sights, sounds, thoughts, pains, emotions are not the problem, and we don't need to get rid of them. The only problem with thoughts is just that we haven't recognized that they're thoughts. We haven't turned yet to see their nature. (laughs) We don't need to get rid of thoughts, just cease to believe them. We don't need to believe the things that believe that they are the things that they represent. They're just thoughts, an activity of mind. 
there's one aspect of modern art in the 20th century that is quite simple and yet rather profound shift, which is simply that art did, there was a shift that occurred with modern art so that art did not need to rely upon representation. Everything does not have to have a symbolic or a representational meaning. Artists can paint without painting an image of something, just working with the experience of paint itself. We can look at a painting and perceive a line as just a line. It doesn't need to be an edge or a contour or a shape. It can just be a line. This shift in art challenges the viewer not to need to indulge in stories, not to need to add the story to things, to make up a representation where one isn't. Turning the mind away from objects, we realize the nature of mind itself. And this can be a subtle shift. We can't try too hard to look for it, or we'll look right through it to the objects. It's not a practice of rejecting things, just not remaining fascinated by them. In this talk, I've been referring to mind as a vast capacity of knowing, the aspect of luminosity. But please don't reify this aspect of luminosity, or it then becomes an object and a basis for suffering. We inquire again, where is the awareness of luminosity? We don't need to identify with the knowing of experience. We don't need to become the one that knows. We don't need to identify as being the seer of something, or we've then made the seer into an object to be seen. How can we cling what we can never find? At some point, all descriptions fall short. Whatever words we choose to describe this, don't quite describe it. Don't reach there. Knowing doesn't exist as something, and yet things are simply known. My teacher in India, Poonjaji, said, There are no words for that beyond language. Freedom is before the concept, freedom. You are what remains when the concepts of I, mind, and past disappear. Nothingness is no concept. The reference point for experience and for our practice is a mind that does not cling to anything. So we investigate our experience without fixation, either internally or externally, without fixating on anything as I, me, or mine. The nature of mind is empty. It's cognizant. It's luminous. It does not exist as a thing, and yet there is cognizance. There is awareness. 
May we all be blessed with the courage, the dedication, and the conditions to look into the nature of mind and to realize the condition of things until we abide beyond grasping after anything conditioned. Let's sit for a few moments. 